Well, good morning, church. So good to see you all here on this Palm Sunday we have this morning. And, and I'd like to actually open this morning with something I normally don't have, and that's an illustration. But I think it's going to actually help us grasp the true gravity of Jesus' triumphal entry in a new way. So, to begin with, I'd like to introduce you to the man whose name is Harry Randall Truman. He was born in Ivydale, West Virginia, to Newberry and Rosa Truman, October 30th, 1896. A few days later, a few years later, his family relocated all the way out to Chehalis, Washington, so his father could work in the ever-expanding timber industry. August 4th, 1917, Harry enlisted in the United States Army to fight in World War I, but he never saw the front lines because his troop transport was torpedoed off the coast of Ireland, off of, no, pardon me, Ireland, and was honorably discharged from military service. Seven years later, Harry became the caretaker of a lodge on the north shore of Spirit Lake at the, Mount, at the foot of Mount St. Helens, and he spent the next 74 years of his life enjoying the stunning beauty of the Northwest. In fact, Harry would have died in obscurity. He would have died in obscurity if it hadn't been for the bomb that was in his backyard. March 20th, 1980, Mount St. Helens was rocked by a 4.2 earthquake. Seven days later, it began venting steam. And by the end of April, the entire north side of the mountain was bulging from the pressure within. Authorities issued evacuation orders and began clearing residences from the danger zone. But Truman refused to evacuate, despite the fact that the bulging mountain was aimed directly at his lodge. In one of the many television interviews, he defiantly proclaimed, I don't have any idea whether it's going to blow, but I certainly don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up and leave. Beside, this area is, is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is between me and the mountain. And the mountain is a mile away. This mountain ain't going to hurt me, boy. Harry Truman died May 18th, 1980 when Mount St. Helens exploded with a destructive force 1,600 times greater than the the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. The event was so violent it unleashed an 800 degree cloud of superheated material that incinerated everything its path and covered the entire Spirit Lake region in 150 feet of volcanic debris. Truman was wrong. He was dead wrong. See, it's one thing to be caught off guard. It's one thing to be caught off guard, but it's another to blindly reject the evidence of the obvious. And in terms of our passage today, what's the most obvious thing? 
The most obvious thing in the passage that Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is king and he deserves our highest praise. That's what he wants us to see. And he shows us four ways that Jesus reveals his kingship in the text. And we could go deeper into these if we had the time, but because we're covering four, we're going to kind of have to kind of keep moving through them. The four ways Jesus reveals his kingship. Riding a donkey, cleansing the temple, healing the disabled, and receiving the children's praise. So let's take a closer look at these and we'll take some time for application at the end. So as we all know, Palm Sunday, we know this picture. We know where it begins. Jesus reveals his kingship by riding a donkey. Let's pick it up back in verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as, just, as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and colt and put, it on, and put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but often, especially in my younger years, I would come to this text, and I had all sorts of questions about the donkey's owner. I might have even given a sermon once that spent too much time on the donkey's owner. Possibly. Does Jesus know him? Has he made prior arrangements? What do his disciples think about the task that they've been given? Did Jesus know about the animals and the owner's positive response to the power of the Holy Spirit? Like, like, like all these questions we have when we come to the donkey and the owner. And the simple fact of the matter is, we don't have a clue because we're not told. Matthew doesn't tell us. Because that's not his main point. The question we need to be asking, and that actually Matthew puts right in front of us, is asking the question, why in the world does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? That's the question we need to start out asking. Why? And there's two important reasons for us to be asking this question. One is, is scholars tell us that it was, it was expected that pilgrims would walk into Jerusalem on these days of pilgrimage. So, so coming in on a donkey was not normal practice. Secondly, it's just the fact, and I'm pretty sure most of you have read your Gospels. How many times can you think of when you see in the Gospels Jesus riding anywhere on an animal? How many times? The answer is zero. He walks everywhere, and if he's not walking, he takes a boat. But we don't see him on an animal anywhere. 
And as we saw, reading through, Matthew tells us why. The riding of the donkey has a purpose. Verse 4, it took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Now let's just stop there. Now what prophet are we talking about? We have a number of prophetic books in our Old Testament. What prophet? We read this morning together in our affirmation that Ryan had us read. We found out that's in Zechariah. It's the prophet Zechariah. But before we go to the text, let's answer a couple questions about what's going on. What is Zechariah doing? Who is he ministering to? Because we have prophets that are before the exile and prophets that are after the exile. Zechariah is one of the prophets that is after the exile and he's ministering to a people that have come back from exile after 70 years in Babylon and it's been about 20 years and they're disillusioned and they're despondent and they're frustrated and they feel like God has not been doing what God told them he would do. They feel let down. Is this really everything that it was cracked up to be? See, the fundamental problem is that the Jews were struggling with at this time was the feeling that God wasn't keeping his promises. Sure, sure, he brought them back to Jerusalem, but he had not fulfilled his promise to fully restore Israel to himself, and he hadn't fulfilled his promise to bring them a new glorious kingdom that was ruled by a faithful king in the line of David. They didn't have it. They didn't have any of it. They're barely holding on. And it's that environment into which God brings Zechariah to bring a message of hope from God himself. A couple key themes in the book of Zechariah. God has turned from judgment to mercy. Amen. They needed to know they're not under judgment. He's turned from judgment to mercy. Other themes. God promises that he will once again return to dwell among his people. I'm coming. I'm going to be with you. Third theme and promise is that God is going to restore the fortunes of Israel through a future Davidic king. A king who's also going to serve like a priest and cleanse them from their sins. These are all promises that come in the book of Zechariah. And it's important because we're we're bringing broader context in because in each of these passages, we're going to grab some broader context because the context of the prophecy, what's around it, matters. It helps us understand the, the ideas that are being pulled forward. And what would mark this king's arrival? According to Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is revealing something about himself. He's declaring, he's declaring, I am. I am the promised son of David. I am the Messiah. I am the king that you've been waiting for. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm here. 
And, and whether or not the crowds grasp everything about the donkey prophecy in Zechariah, what are they crying out? They're crying out with words from Psalm 118, a psalm that is, that is, that is recited as they go up and out in praise as they go up to Jerusalem, but they're, but they're leveraging key words in application to Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're desperately hoping that Jesus might be or somehow connected with the one that they've been waiting for. As they give him a royal entry, laying down their garments, laying down the branches. Yet as they arrive at the city of Jerusalem, there's a notable shift in the story that isn't quite as clear in our English texts. There's a shift. If you look, it says, all of Jerusalem was stirred up. That word stirred up in the Greek, it is not a positive word. They're not, they're not excited. They're not overflowing with anticipation. It's a word that was used of Herod earlier in Matthew being deeply disturbed. Another way we might put it is here is the entire city was shaken. There, there's concern and there's worry. So, so on the outside there's celebration and on the inside the city is shaken and it's disturbed. And that's helping us understand that those inside the city, most of it probably being the religious elite, do not see what's happening on the outside as good news. They're not seeing it as good news. The temple authorities don't see it as good news. And where does Jesus go as he arrives? He goes to the temple. And reveals his kingship by cleansing it, starting in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, when we come to this section on the cleansing of the temple, we, we, we got we to realize that it's, I, I realize it's easy to think that Jesus is merely upset that they're selling things in the temple. And, and there's yes to that. But, but there's so much more than the fact that they're selling. The activities aren't necessarily the heart of the problem. Because something that we don't realize in our day and age is if you're a pilgrim for the far reaches and you're coming to Jerusalem to worship and you're supposed to bring a sacrifice and that sacrifice has to be perfect and you've got to travel 50, 60, 100 miles to get there, what's the chance that your sacrifice is going to get dinged up along the way and be no longer acceptable by the time you get to Jerusalem? So, I mean, it was, I mean, a necessary service around Jerusalem was providing sacrifices for people. Because it was, there, was, there was that difficulty and danger that they might bring their sacrifice and no longer be good by the time they get there. There's money changing needing to be done because of currencies and everything else. There's the temple tax that needs to be paid in a certain currency. So in and of themselves, 
They are providing a service to worshipers. So what's the problem? The problem is, is the priesthood has perverted this yearly time of public worship into an opportunity for private gain. That's the problem. And as we look at the text, what makes matters the worst is, is they, are, they are actually oppressing the poorest of the poor as they do it. Like, 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 like they're, they're impacting everybody, but the greatest impact is actually on the poorest of the poor. Notice, who does Jesus go after in the text? We have two groups of people highlighted. Money changers. Why? They're, changed, they're charging, as we, we know from history, sky-high commissions for their service. They're not just exchanging, it's the commission. They're ripping people off. And you notice Jesus isn't running out sheep herders or goat sellers. He's running out the people who sell pigeons. If you're a little familiar with the sacrificial system, pigeons were the sacrifice of the poorest of the poor. It's it's what it's what Joseph and Mary bring in to sacrifice after Jesus is born. It's the smallest, poorest thing available for somebody to bring in sacrifice to God. And Jesus is kicking over those guys. Because once again, historians tell us that these guys were pricing the poor people out of the market or pushing them so far that they were taking everything they had so they could possibly come and worship. It was costing them everything. Or it was unattainable. That's what's going on. So this is why Jesus is mad which I believe it is. How does he reveal his kingly identity and his authority to do what he did? Because Jesus defends himself, right? He, he defends himself, and we look at verse 13, and he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And, and that, that, that one verse is actually made up of two quotations. The, As it is written is a quotation of Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. Jesus brings those two together. So let's take a look at this first one, Isaiah 56, 7. Again, thinking about the broader context about what happens on either side of Isaiah 56, 7. So think of it like an Oreo cookie. All right? Isaiah 56, 7 is the creamy filling in the middle, and we're going to talk about the one edge of the cookie and then the other edge of the cookie, each side. So when Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer, what happens before that? Well, kind of in the broader section, kind of before we get to the cookie, we've got to understand that this is happening in a broader prophecy talking about the coming kingdom of God. Like the entire section is about God's kingdom coming. And, and so, and Jesus walking in and declaring that the temple is his house and clearing it out, he's revealing that the kingdom has come and the king is here. 
So, so kind of on the biggest picture level, Jesus is doing that. But when we kind of come in now to what's on each side in our cookie, on the first side, before Isaiah 56, 7, we have God promising of a day that he's going to restore his people And in that day, he's not only going to gather the exiled people of Israel, but he's going to gather foreigners and eunuchs to his holy mountain so they can all worship and rejoice in his house of prayer, which is called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the the, the first half is this promise of when the kingdom comes, there's restoration for the people, and there's inclusion of all peoples. And this is important because I know some of you are wondering if I've missed it, but where is this all occurring in the temple? Where where are these sales going on? They're going on in the the court of the Gentiles. It's like the only place in the temple that somebody who's not a Jew can come and even get close. And so they've taken the very place that the outsider could come and worship and they filled it with a market. So that's the first side. Second side, we move to after Isaiah 56, 7. The following verses. God moves from the promise of of, of, of restoring people and bringing all peoples to him for worship instantly after Isaiah 56, 7 and starts scolding Israel's priesthood. It's a scathing rebuke. These are the kind of things that God says following this. His religious leaders have behaved like watchmen who are blind and completely devoid of knowledge. They've behaved like dogs whose fierce appetites are never satisfied. They've behaved like faithless shepherds who turn to their own way so that they could secure their own profit. Sound familiar? That's what's, that's what's going on in the text. On both sides of this, promise of restoration and rebuke on the other. And that's what's going on. The promises are here, the king is here, but the rebuke is here. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus' citation of Jeremiah 7.11, but you make it a den of robbers, is, is equally devastating. See, on, on the surface, it, it's it's it's... We don't have to go too far on the surface. Jesus is exposing the true nature of the temple. He's saying, this isn't a place of worship and joy and freedom and celebration. It's a place when people come here, they get ripped off. that's that's, That's what's going on here. They're being taken advantage of. That's what the temple is now. But it gets even worse. When we recognize, again, in the original context of Isaiah 7, 11, it exposes an underlying belief that's driving the priesthood's behavior. See, Jeremiah starts getting into what's under the hood. What's driving them? If you, if you read Isaiah 7, 1 through 15, you'll see that God is talking to his people and his priests and his prophets who believe they can live in open rebellion against God as long as they go through the external motions 
of temple worship. That's what he rebukes him for. As long as we just do the external thing, we can do whatever we want. And yet God's point is through this, like, like you guys have failed to realize. You've abandoned your calling. You're, you're, in, you're in the crosshairs of my just and righteous wrath. We go to Jer- Jeremiah 7.20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast and upon trees and field and the fruit of the ground, and it's going to burn and not be quenched. And it happened. The first time in Jeremiah, when the temple's destroyed, all the rocks, everything it was built on cleared off the mound. People hauled away into exile. And it happens again in 70 AD. See, notice in all this, what does Jesus want them to understand? He wants them to see his actions are the rightful fulfillment of Israel's promised king. These guys know the Bible better than anybody. They know these books. They know these prophecies. They know what the verses are and they know what the context is. What's Jesus doing? He's bringing justice to the poor. What's Jesus doing? He's making a way for the nations to worship him. What's he doing? He's purifying his house that's been spoiled by his deviant, self-serving stewards. Jesus is doing everything that's been promised. Yet as Jesus drives the money changers and the merchants out of the temple, the void quickly fills in. What's left behind? The emptiness of turned over tables, garbage scattered across the ground, and a crowd of the most overlooked people in the country of Israel and often in our world today fill the empty space. Starting verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, don't you hear what these are saying? And he said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. What's the third way Jesus reveals his kingship is by healing the disabled. But you might be wondering, how? How do they reveal his kingship? Because in this text on the healing, is we, we're not given a fulfillment text. We're not given Zechariah. We're not given Isaiah. We're not given Jeremiah. Well, I think that Matthew does not give us an explicit fulfillment prophecy text because he already has. He already has. If you've been, if if you were reading through Matthew, not just kind of jumping in like we did today, if you're reading through Matthew, you would have been tipped off to it. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Early in Jesus' ministry, 
John the Baptist is in jail. We'll pick it up, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? Notice, notice John's on track. He's on, he's on track where nobody else is. Are you the one? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, see, in John's question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? That's what he's asking. Are, Are you really the one that we've been waiting for? I mean, he knows his ministry. He knows what his ministry is about. But when Jesus sends back an answer, he he sends back this answer that just seems like a list of miracles. And now, I mean, they're miracles, right? Like, like whoever's going to depreciate any of these things? They're amazing. But he sends a list back. Have you ever wondered why he sends a list back? He's actually tipping John to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And I think it's also the passage that's behind the healing in the temple. Here's a promise again of the coming day of God's kingdom. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. evidence of the kingdom that's Jesus' answer to John evidence of the kingdom these things are happening Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled in your sight and it's the very thing that happens in this now not necessarily empty space but at least cleansed space in the temple Jesus is doing the very same thing these prophecies fulfilled in the very view of the people who know their Bible the most People who have been blind their entire life. Able to see in an instant. People who have been lame. Either completely unable to walk, paraplegic, or, or people that haven't been able to walk well. Instantly. Instantly healed, able to walk and run and leap. And that's amazing because when you watch your baby, how long it takes them to figure out how to walk. Like, like there's even more going on there, Right? Like, like they're walking and running. And Jesus does it. He reveals his kingship in his healing. But as we go to the final section, we see the callousness of the priesthood. I mean, if, if, you, if you just put the picture in front of you, instantaneous healing blindness deafness cerebral palsy instant and how do they respond the leaders celebrate the miracles 
I mean, Matthew's clear. They are wonderful things. They're wonderful. Nobody would call them not wonderful. They don't celebrate the events. They don't celebrate the miraculous gifts of health. They they don't slow down to consider the ever-mounting evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And they they don't even stop to ponder the truthfulness of the children's exuberant praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Just, now, now catch that. Did you notice that his first day begins and ends with the same celebration? It's bookended. It opens coming into the city. Hosanna to the son of David. It closes at the end with Hosanna to the son of David. The day bookended with both proclamations even. But how do the religious leaders respond? They openly protest the children's celebration. And they imply that Jesus should rebuke them for blasphemy. But as we see, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He defends their adoration, revealing in an even more ostentatious way that he is Israel's king by accepting their praise. So four ways. Many more things that we could say in there. But let's take some time to put some pieces together. What does Matthew want us to see about Jesus? He wants us to see that despite every revelation of his true identity, the religious leaders refuse They flat out refuse to believe that Jesus is their promised king and that he's wholly worthy of their praise and worship. They refuse, no matter what they see, no matter what happens, what he says, what he does. They refuse. See, see, it's, it's one thing to be caught off guard. But it's another to blindly reject what the, the evidence of the obvious. That's what's going on here. These guys are rejecting the evidence of the obvious. Jesus is king and he's worthy of their praise. And what do we see about our king's character in this passage? What is this king like? He's a king that's committed to justice. True justice. He excoriates the empty religion of the elites and he defends the neglected and the poor. At the same time, he's a king that overflows with compassion and kindness. He cares about people. He cares about broken people. He restores broken lives. Disabled people to complete wholeness. I mean, this is the kind of king that anybody would want. I mean, who wouldn't want to have rulers in place right now in any country of the world that this was how they behaved? There's nothing ugly about what he's doing. 
Yet as this king comes to his city and he comes to his house and it's full of people who, who deserve his rightful wrath. He didn't come to set up his throne by slaying his enemies. He didn't leave the temple covered in the blood of the priesthood. Did he? He forever satisfied God's righteous wrath against his enemies by shedding his own blood for them. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save us while we were hopelessly lost in our sin and rebellion against him. The truth is, probably many of us spent much of our life more in the position of the religious leaders before we came to faith than we'd like to admit. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God shows his love. That's what we're seeing in his kingship. His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Not after we cleaned ourselves up. Not after we got better. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come? For if, we were his en- for if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his own son, how much more now that we be reconciled, and pardon me, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Speaking of the resurrection. What does this verse point out to us? There's a threat on the horizon, right? There is wrath that is in the future. A problem that has to be dealt with. And it's a problem that God himself has dealt with in his son Jesus Christ and provided the way. What's the only condition? The the only condition is that we do what the religious leaders in Matthew refused to do. To recognize who Jesus is and to repent of our sin and embrace him as our Savior and King. That's the requirement. This is the good news of the gospel, right? Right? Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners and God will forgive and restore and forever keep you as his own. If, that's the condition, if you turn from your sinful self-sufficiency, if you turn from your pride, you turn and you repent and you embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope of forgiveness and a right relationship with God. not waiting on good deeds, not anything else, but the finished work of Christ. See, and here's the beauty of it. It don't matter what you've done in your entire life. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
And you want to know how scandalous grace is? It doesn't matter what you will do. It doesn't matter what others have done to you or taken from you. It doesn't matter if you were one of those people who who grew up in 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 a church and followed God for a while and then ran away and think that that's enough to forever separate you. It's not. See, the great thing about the gospel is nobody ever has to prove themselves to God. Nobody. It's because we can't. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It leaves ground for nobody to say they accomplished it. Nobody. Reminds us the law is there to point us to our need for Christ. You sinned, you sinned, you sinned, you failed, you sinned. Now, after we come to faith in Christ, the law is there to direct us in holiness and how to live, yes. But it's never for achievement. It's, it's never for earning merit. But we could jump forward to verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. There's a righteousness that's available to mankind. It doesn't come through the law. Though he qualifies it, though the law and the prophets, though the Old Testament points forward to it, he's saying it was always, it was always telling us something was coming. And it was this, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe the righteousness of God, how does it come? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And for any person who gets hung up on, well, you don't know how bad I was, you don't know what I've done, then what does he say? For there is no distinction. We need to embrace that. No distinction. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's the beauty and glory of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. His death is sufficient to save the most wicked, self-serving priest in that temple. And you know what? We've seen in the book of Acts early on, some priests got saved. So if if you're here and you're Christian today, this is important for us to see. Because this is really the grounds of our hope and our fuel for a life of unceasing worship. You want to have stability as a Christian through the ups and downs of life and everything that happens? It's here. It's not in your doing. It's in Christ. You deserved infinite wrath, but you've received infinite mercy. It's grounds for our hope. It holds us above the water when we're ready to drown. It's a reminder 
of how great and glorious our God is who will never leave us nor forsake us. But at the same time, if you're here today, maybe somebody watching online, and, and, and you haven't received Jesus' offer of forgiveness, it's really important to understand that his offer has an expiration date. Right? Jesus is coming again. The king is coming a second time. And and when this king comes in his second return, he's going to come in his glory. And it's going to be just like the morning of May 18th, 1980. And at that point in time, it's too late. When the mountain blew, there was no time for, for Harry to jump in his car and make it out. It was over. And it's going to be the same way when Christ returns. Because he's not going to be arriving as a humble savior to bear the sin of mankind, but a righteous ruling king who's going to make all things right. Judgment coming to those who've refused his offer and salvation to those who have embraced his gospel. Those who've repented of their sin come to faith in Christ. And this is the picture we're given. Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice the people who are being judged by their deeds are not being judged by their deeds and found worthy. It's only those whose name are written in the book of life. See, we need to recognize that Jesus has established this time in which we currently live, the time between his comings, as a season of salvation in which everyone who responds to his free offer will experience everlasting joy not judgment upon his arrival. That is the day and age in which we live. As Christians, it gives us reason to be thinking about how do we share? Who needs to know? And for those who don't know, it reminds you that you can't ignore the signs that God has provided and still have a hope. It's one thing to be caught off guard, but it's another to reject the evidence that God has provided in his word. If you're with us today and you haven't done that, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. I would love to share with you, Ryan would love to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in order of prayer together.